I mean, there's. Sorry, sorry. No problem. So, so this is being recorded. You can watch again later. I mean, you can go back and get some stuff, but if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of go at a clip, quick clip just to get through as much as we want to. Um, let me start by sharing my screen. Does that work? It, that's more specifically. Okay. So, so all of my disclosures are here. None of it should be relevant to what we're talking about, except for the dog thing. When we get to that, I'll, I'll call that out. Um, but I want to start by just very briefly visually showing you the difference between what it means to treat symptoms or treat progression. All day, I see people in clinic who are taking a bunch of stuff or doing a bunch of stuff for their Parkinson's. And when I ask, are you taking it for a symptom or to stop progression? They often don't know. And my kind of overwhelming advice before we get too deep into this is before you start doing or taking anything, you should have an understanding of what your goals are. How will you know it's working? Are you trying to stop the disease pro progressing or are you trying to make your constipation go away? Because one, you're not going, you'll know if it's working in a week the other one, you're not going to know if it's working for years. And so that that's an important backdrop here. So this you'll you'll get familiar with this scale before before in, in a few slides. But what this is basically showing is this is the rate of Parkinson's progression and and the green dots kind of are, are real people. This represents the diversity that exists in Parkinson's. But on average, most people at diagnosis are about a 580 and get worse at 40 points per year. So if you were taking something that treated symptoms, say dopamine, this is kind of what you'd expect. It cuts your symptoms way down, but the disease progresses just like normal. It doesn't do anything to slow the slope of progression. It just makes each makes you feel a little better each step of the way as the disease progresses. Whereas something that were a disease modify, were a disease modifying therapeutic, you're not necessarily even going to feel better for the first year or two. But as time goes on, 10 years into this disease, 15, 20, you'll be looking at your friends that got diagnosed the same time as you saying, oh, I sure am glad I've been exercising, right? Like over time that has paid off. And so what I'm trying to do, most of my work is going to fall into this category. Over time, how do you know if it's working? And in the struggle that each of you run into is you hear things like broccoli is good for you, but you eat broccoli and your tremor doesn't go away. So how do you know it's working, right? And so one person by themselves has a really hard time trying to figure out what's working and what's not. And so that's where our study comes in. Um, and so not only is there slowing the slope of progression, but there's also stabilizing it. And where I'm headed is let's reverse it, right? And I've been following 2,700 people with Parkinson's around the world for the last six years. And according to our data, about 9% of people seem to be getting better. They've, they've figured out their code. Over time, their symptoms are decreasing, often with less medication. So um, we're working on those numbers. We're trying to kind of figure out exactly how common is it to have improvements over time, but I absolutely believe it's possible. And the way that I'm going about figuring out how to do it is by studying the people who are doing it. Who are those people who have gotten better over time and what are they doing differently? So six years ago, I started this study called CAM Care in PD, 
Um, and and any, all of you, it would be fabulous if you're not already in this, if you would consider joining. The more people who participate, the clearer and clearer the data becomes. Um, and so you can go to this website, Cam Karen Parkinson's, read the consent form so you know what you're getting into. And if this sounds like something you'd be willing to do, answer a survey twice a year. Um, then you go straight to the fill out the online survey and you can just start. You could join tonight, you can join tomorrow. Um, and so what we have been doing is, is very, very simply, who are the people who are doing horrible? Very few years into the disease, they are already highly symptomatic. They have lots of symptoms and their quality of life is poor. Who are these people and what are they doing differently than these people who are 10, 20 years into the disease? but their quality of life is good or excellent. And as simple as this is, we've been complaining as a research community for 100, 200 years now about the diversity of this disease. You've all heard no two patients are the same. Um, and everyone has treated the diversity of this disease like the downfall, like one of the reasons why we, it's so hard to study Parkinson's is because people are so different. And it's true if you're doing a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, the diversity is a major limitation. But if you're doing the kind of research I like to do, I'm using the diversity among you as my to my advantage, right? I wanna find who are these people who are 15 years into their disease and hardly have any symptoms and an excellent quality of life, right? And, and very simply, you wanna do what they're doing. That's, that's what I'm recommending. So, in terms of rating Parkinson's progression, I think most of you are familiar with the UPDRS that your neurologist does in the office. That's how most studies have historic, historically sized up Parkinson's severity. Please raise your hand if you think that this test is a sums up your experience with Parkinson's, right? Um, so what I tried to do is build a scale that did a better job capturing severity of disease. I mean, as silly as it sounds, we have been trying for a very long time to decrease the slope of Parkinson's progression, but we actually don't have a rating scale that measures slope. The, this test does not allow us to measure rate, right? And so it, it, it's, it, it, we're trying to move the needle, but we don't have a needle to move. And so what I tried to do is build a currency that we could use to know if we were on the right track. So what you do, I asked you, um, for those of you who, who got the invite ahead of time, I suggested that you might wanna fill out this ProPD before today's visit. And so what you do is you go to this website and get your score. And the, the, we, the way we ask it is over the last seven days, how severe have any of these symptoms been? If they're not severe at all, you click over here, no problem with loss of interest, no apathy, no anxiety, my fatigue's pretty bad, my sleepiness, so-so, my dyskinesia, I don't have any of that. And you go through this list, it takes about five minutes, and then we add this all up. This would be about a 75, this is a 15, that's a zero. And so all of these numbers on the back end are zero to 100. You can't see it, but we can. And so at the end of the ProPD, you get yourself a score. And you can see that the average person with Parkinson's about 10 years in has a score of about 1,000. And you can start to compare yourself to, it, think of it like a report card. You know, if you were diagnosed 10 years ago and you score a 1,200, then I would, I would ask myself, hey, who, who's their doctor? You know, what are they doing that I'm not? What am I missing? Do I have a vitamin D deficiency? Do I have a B12? Maybe I need to change my diet or exercise more, do the things that we're about to talk about. But that's um, on average, 
a new person has a diagnosis of about 580 the day of diagnosis and gets worse about 40 points per year. And I believe that we can all agree that a score of zero is success. Like if you go through this list of 33 symptoms and say, I don't have constipation, I don't have fatigue, my erections are strong, my energy is good, my sleep is excellent, I don't have a tremor, I don't move slowly. If you answer zero to all of these, we would all be happy, right? So we all, there's universal agreement that zero equals success. So this is essentially the study I designed was to set out to figure out, could I enroll a bunch of people to get them to tell me about their behaviors, their habits, their lifestyle? And could I write statistical code that would help me figure out what the success stories are doing that the fast progressors aren't and vice versa? And like I said, as simple as it is, until we have a cure, my advice is that you should not do what these people are doing and you should try to do what these people are doing. It sounds silly and simple, but I really think it is the best strategy we have right now. Until somebody figures out how to cure this disease, you should just do what the people who are successful are doing. Before I dive into the answer key, um, many of the, you will have different emotions as we go through these slides. I'll show you the exercise slide and the slide that says vegetables are good. And you will say, duh, I can't believe you wasted your time doing that research. And then I will tell you how bad ice cream is. And you'll be like, that's stupid. I didn't. Yeah, like you, you will have your own response. Some things make sense. Some things are going to be, I'm going to tell you that some of the things that bring you enjoyment are actually might be hurting you right? And so it's just data. It's one study's attempt at describing these variables. There will be other researchers who come after me who ask the question slightly different ways, get slightly different answers. Um, but I will say that I, I be aware of your resistance to things that you don't like to hear um, and laugh at yourself a little bit. I mean, maybe you don't quit something entirely, you minimize it. I mean, we'll talk about that at the end. The other thing I really want to stress is, is the, the way that we have done this analysis is association, right? I cannot promise you that if you change your diet, it will change the slope of progression. I cannot promise you that exercise will improve your anxiety. But I can tell you with more than 95% confidence that the people with who have the least anxiety get the most exercise, right? And so just because two things don't go together doesn't mean that A cause B. So all of this stuff you have to know, we, I can't, we, we, it's just as far as science has gotten. I don't have enough money to hire enough grad students to do the, the analysis that I need to do to, to get to those deeper details yet. But as more of you enroll in the study and we get more analyses done, the power of this is going to become greater and greater. Um, the other thing I wanna say before we also dive in is when we talk about symptoms of Parkinson's disease, movement disorder docs, neurologists, research community thinks in terms of bradykinesia, tremor, stooped posture, rigidity, kind of these cardinal motor symptoms. But when we survey you, the people with Parkinson's disease, two thirds of the symptoms that you report are non-motor. Um, you know, the most common symptoms are fatigue, impaired handwriting, loss of smell, memory impairment, muscle pain, things like that. And so 
I, I know that you don't need to be told that Parkinson's is more than motor symptoms, but I do think we need to train our thinking to really, really, every time you hear the word Parkinson, think non-motor symptoms, really, really start to redefine this disease and be more appreciative of how, how um, this blue line is the total symptom severity score over time. The red line tells you which chunk of total symptoms are the non-motor ones. And you can see from the first day of diagnosis all the way through, the majority of the symptoms that people deal with are the non-motor ones. Um, and part of this is because we have really great medicines to hide the motor. You know, if you took, if I took away your dopamine, that blue line would be a lot higher. I promise you that. So, so part of this, two thirds of Parkinson's symptoms are not motor symptoms is because we have awesome motor drugs and because we are doing a horrible job coming up with therapies that help you manage the non-motor symptoms. And that's where I think a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today has, has the potential to do the best benefit. Um, so off the top, exercise is your cheapest, easiest, fastest bang for your buck in terms of where we see impressive outcomes. The more days per week that a person does exercise, the higher their quality of life, right? 40 is about as good as it gets. People doing six to, days, six to seven days a week of exercise are basically saying my social health is excellent. My physical health is excellent. My mental health is excellent. I'm not in pain. I mean, kind of these big touchstone concepts. Um, when we kind of take the, look at this alone more fine-tuned, um, what we see is this has to do with rate of progression. What we see is when we compare two men in the same age, the same age diagnosed at the same time in the same income bracket, the person, the more exercise a person gets, the fewer symptoms they accumulate over time right? And it looks like the first two days a week don't make a big difference at all. We actually, it does not look like two days a week of exercise is statistically significant at slowing the rate of Parkinson's progression. It does look like once you hit three days a week and beyond, it gets better and better and better so that we can actually measure people who do seven days a week of exercise reporting fewer accumulation of fewer symptoms over time than even people doing six days a week more is better. Raise your hand if you have done exercise. I'm putting you on gallery view here. Raise your hand if you have done exercise six or seven days this week in the past. There are not a lot of hands up. Okay, a few. Okay. Okay. So, um, and then we looked at it even differently and we wanted to know what symptoms get better. This is a radar chart. The bigger the maple leaf, the more symptomatic a person is. And so I tried to group these in, these are the motor symptoms over here, dressing, posture, gait, balance, things like that. These tend to be the motor symptoms. These are the non-motor symptoms, urinary dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, daytime sleepiness, fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, depression, apathy, um, initiative. So, so what we see, again, in terms of symptoms this week, people who do two days a week of exercise or less are no better off than people who do nothing. In terms of symptom improvement, we can't measure it with this scale. If it's there, uh -huh. we can't measure it. 
30% improvement all around in non-motor and motor symptoms in people who are doing three to five days per week. And once you get to six to seven days a week, we see a 50% reduction in symptoms. Wow. Those are really big numbers. And we're not even asking, did you drip with sweat and get your heart rate into a target zone? We're just asking how many days did you do at least 30 minutes of exercise? I don't care if it's Tai Chi or yoga or, or rock steady boxing or power or cycling programs. I don't care what it is. Just find some way every day to get 30 minutes of exercise in and see if you can't get yourself into this yellow zone. Um, People being lonely is as bad for you as seven days a week is good for you. Um, you know, I loved the reason I actually said yes to this. Um, I, I promised myself no more talks. I've been doing way too many talks lately and I'm falling behind in everything else. But I love that this was named Shakers Anonymous because I really think that Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the best role models that we as a community could follow. Um, we do not understand why, but, but there is something about community coming together that is actually medicinal in Parkinson's disease. People who are, I don't think I have a slide for it, but it's similar to the exercise one so that a um, person who is lonely is actually about 50% more symptomatic. They don't progress faster, but each step of the way, they are about 50% more symptomatic than somebody who says, I am not lonely. Um, doctors are starting to learn about something called social prescribing, where you can actually, it's part of the doctor's job to make sure that you are plugged into a community, that you have a referral network, that uh, people that you can turn to. Um, I really, really think these support groups and these, you know, we, just like Alcoholics Anonymous was a kind of uprising among the people being affected, it was not something handed to them from the doctors and the researchers, the patients figured it out themselves. And that is exactly what is happening in Parkinson's disease. Patients have figured out docs aren't offering much, they get way more out of a rock steady boxing class. I mean, the meds help. I'm a big fan of meds. I want everyone taking their dopamine, but patients have figured out that there is power it is actually therapeutic to get together with another group of Parkinson's patients and talk and work out and dance together and yoga together and, and bike together. I mean, the, the tribe as part of the medicine is not a real concept in a lot of medicine, except in alcohol and addiction and Parkinson's are the only two groups that I'm aware of who have really had, had the patients coming together as a team as therapeutic. Um, in terms of doctors screening patients for social health and loneliness, we will be presenting these data um, this fall at the Movement Disorders Conference, and we can see each step of the way, um, you know, the, the people who say, I feel left out, that is the single biggest predictor of who identified as lonely. Um, so I like showing this slide just because I, I want not only you to ask yourself, do I sometimes feel left out? You know, what I say often, sometimes, rarely, or never. I mean, every one of you should be able to answer this for yourself. Like how often do I feel left out, right? And the goal is never, that's what we want. Those are the people who are doing, have the lowest, the people who say, I never feel left out, have an average pro PD score of about 650. 
the people who say, I often feel left out, I can't even see they're off my chart, 1400 over 1400. That's more than twice as symptomatic. And so this is not only for you all to take your own inventory about your social health, but because you're in a position to help the person next to you. I mean, every person on this call is in a position to be part of somebody else's medicine. Like all you have to do is make someone feel invited. It can be to a phone call, to a lunch. Uh, how are you? Do you want to just, just, I want to change the way we start thinking about medicine and the toolbox of therapeutics is a lot more diverse than the pills that we swallow. Um, in terms of foods, people hear that I have a PhD in nutrition and a lot of times they jump straight to what do I eat? Um, so we ask food questions a lot of different ways. And this section is a true false question, right? So what we did is we said, um, we gave a long list of statements and people went through and said true or false. The people who, have st who are doing statistically better over time say true to the following statements. I avoid artificial sweeteners. I avoid soda. I eat most of my meals at home. I regularly eat buckwheat, avoid beef. I avoid artificial colors and flavors. I cook most of my own meals. I avoid dairy. I regularly eat a grain called farro. I try to eat organically grown foods when possible. I avoid pork. I am vegetarian. I routinely prepare meals for others. I eat a lot of quinoa and I use spices liberally. The people who are doing worse over time say that they drink mostly plastic water, bottle out of water out of plastic bottles. They are overweight and they find it difficult to afford healthy food and find it difficult to afford groceries. People who say true to those bottom four statements are statistically doing worse than people who said false. So, you know, I think I never, when I started studying modifiable variables in Parkinson's and nutrition and environmental medicine, I, I wasn't thinking finances. I mean, of course, rich people get better care. They have better access to better drugs. They're more empowered. I, I mean, I'm not surprised to learn this is true. This is kind of universally true in the world that we live in, but I was not expecting being lonely and being poor to be the two biggest predictors of Parkinson's progression, right? And I think that we as a community need to start having that conversation. Um, I think it's gonna be easier to find solve the loneliness issue than it is the financial stress issue. But I do want us to start having those conversations about the role of financial instability and the stress that that plays. And, um, you know, I, I Love this. I, you know, I, I asked a I gave a talk to a group in Canada where they have socialized medicine. And I asked this philosophical question is, you know, could you, if this, if this data holds up, right, if a couple other researchers come by and learn that the same thing is true, that financial insecurity is really making everything worse. What I'd be curious, would you, you personally, you don't have to answer right now, be supportive of a stipend. What if we learned that we could give you a stipend of $1,000 a month to join Rocksteady Boxing, buy your supplements, eat better food, pay, you know, not live in stress. And that we might find that that is actually more therapeutic than some of the pills you're taking. 
And, and, and again, I don't know that we should do that. I'm just saying I want to get people out of the idea that the solution is always going to be a pill or a procedure, right? Like solutions for how to kick butt against Parkinsonism are going to come in a lot of unorthodox packages and we need to have some really creative, open, keep an open mind as we come up with some creative solutions because the approaches we've been taking for the last 200 years have not brought us a single therapy that slows, stops, reverses, or prevents Parkinson's. So we have to step back, ask the questions a little bit differently and be creative in our new approach. And it looks like financial insecurity and social health are big problems. Organic, um, you know, there's a lot of research that says pesticides are associated with getting Parkinson's. I guess I'm not really surprised that once diagnosed, people who try to do organic do better over time. Maybe that's the pesticides, but it's probably just trying. These people are just being more thoughtful about what they're eating. I mean, you know, they're making a, a value decision. Every time they look at the conventional bananas and the organic bananas and decide to spend an extra $10, 10 cents a pound on the organic bananas, they're making a decision to, to invest in themselves, right? I mean, the fact that you're just asking these questions, I don't know if the pesticides that are sprayed on a conventional banana are actually making your disease worse. Um, if I had to guess, I would say it speaks to people who try to eat organic are just across the board being more thoughtful about what they're putting in their body. Um, so here's just another, oh, here's something that a lot of people are, this is the actual food list. I know this is a little bit hard to read, but I will read it to you. Um, the Pharaoh was a big surprise. So the stuff leaning to the left are the thing, are, are where we saw the greatest improvement. And um, what we saw are the foods that are associated with less accumulation of symptoms over time. We'll call it reduced rate of progression. Farro is in a grain. We'll get to that in a minute. Fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, nuts and seeds, olive oil, non-fried fish, coconut oil, beans, green tea, wine, fresh herbs, right? The more of those things people eat, the less symptomatic they were um, over time. Conversely, what we found is the more yogurt, milk, drinking out of plastic bottles, juice, butter, cheese, canned vegetables, pork, pasta, chicken, fried foods, soda, beef, ice cream, diet soda, and canned fruit a person eats the faster they were progressing. Again, I cannot tell you that your mac and cheese and chicken are causing Parkinson's progression, but I can tell you the people who are doing the worst over time are eating more mac and cheese and chicken. What you do with this information is up to you. I am the messenger. One of the reasons I love this study is because it's not my opinion. It's not my idea. There are a lot of smart scientists out there who have a lot of interesting ideas. Right, And instead of this being about who can make a better case, who's more compelling, whose book covers more appealing, you know, what I wanted to do is leave me and my opinions out of it and just use your, you. Get 2,700 people to all tell me what you're eating and I can tell you the people who eat the most vegetables are doing the best. So this is just, I am the messenger. It is patients like you telling me what's working and I'm just passing it along.
So I know one of the questions is going to be what in the heck is Faro? Um, I was not familiar with Faro before I did this project. I don't even think I had ever eaten Faro before doing this project. I've now come to love it. I like it better than rice. I let it get better than wheat. Um, I'll even call it meaty. Um, I, I actually really, really enjoy the taste of Faro. It comes under a bunch of different names. It's very inexpensive. Um, uh, it does contain gluten. So people who have celiac disease um, can't eat it. But I will tell you, it sure puts a wrench in the thinking, avoid gluten. There are a lot of patients who think gluten's bad. And here, the, the food that is most associated with best outcomes over time is high in gluten. So gluten's not the problem, obviously. There might be something else about some breads that make people feel bad. Um, but in terms of, as far as Parkinson's goes, gluten does not seem to be a problem. In fact, it might, it, it, there's something in Faro that's pretty great. Um, there are a bunch of different types of, of, of gluten, of Faro. Uh, sorghum is another grain that showed up really high. They think that um, when I kind of looked at the sorghum, the farro, the buckwheat, and the quinoa, it looks like what they all have in common are these fermentable fibers. And so basically what that means is you eat them and, and they don't get digested. The whole way through your tube, through the whole small intestine, they don't get digested until they get to the large intestines where they act as food for all of the good gut bugs. And so this is, you know, instead people always ask, should I take a probiotic? The answer is no. What you should do is eat the foods that are going to feed the right bugs in your gut. This is how you do that. Just to give you some, make you salivate a little bit. Here's, a, you know, what a Moroccan farro salad with a salmon filet looks like. I make this a lot. I'll make it and it'll last a few days for lunch, a farro kale salad with cranberries. Um, here's a farro salad with corn and tomatoes. It tastes delicious. We had that last week. Here's a traditional farro soup. I think it's, um, I don't remember what this is called, but if you just type in it, Italian farro soup, lots of recipes pop up. Um, I've been adding it to salads. It adds a little texture. It's, it's really got some substance to it. Like if you've ever had mushroom barley soup, I've been making like a mushroom farro soup. It's, it's great. It's easy. It's delicious. It's great in the summer, especially, um, you know, just some more, just, you don't always have to have it as a side dish to your dinner. Here's a breakfast bowl that uses quinoa. Bowel movements and the side effect of this strategy is you start having more bowel movements, right? You know, constipation becomes less of a pro problem if you start your day with a whole grain, high in fiber and fruit, things like that. Um, here's just another food idea to kind of get you like this is what your meals should be looking for. Um, and it's really hard to kind of convey how much is enough, you know, is one good food better than another good food? Um, so I have been putting together this um, kind of point system where, you know, for every half cup of farro, you get 13 points. Every half cup of fresh veggies, you get five points. If you have chicken for dinner, you lose four. And, and what we know is the more points a person gets, the better they do over time. And so, um, you know, I've been trying, playing with different teaching strategies, just different ways to get people to see how, how to get less of this and more of this. Um, and so 
what I do is I give my patients a copy of this handout. It's on the summer school and I can, I can send a link that you can share amongst yourself to the, a PDF of this. Um, but, but what I want people to do is spend the first couple days just seeing where they're starting from. For two or three days, print out a few copies of this and just see how many points you get in a day. I did this with my kids for a few days. I'm an easy 28 to 40 points naturally. My daughter's about a 15 to 20, and my son's a minus 16, right? And so, so you need to figure out where you're starting from. And once you've done it for a couple of days and just kind of every time you have, you know, bacon for breakfast, there goes three points and just write bacon, you know, just keep track of it and tally up your points. And then what I want you to do is start playing a game. Where can I get a few extra? You know, trading out butter for olive oil instead of losing two points, now you get to gain three. You know, I can make a morning smoothie that has 25 points. Now that I know what I'm looking for, I can, I, you'd be shocked what I can squeeze in that smoothie. And, and I can easily get 25 points, 30 points before I leave for work in the morning. Um, and so once, and so what it's looking like in the data is not that you will never be able to eat these foods again, but you sure need to, it, it has to do with how many total points you get, the ratio of good to bad foods. Um, I had a patient get 97 points. I mean, that's unheard of. She said she was very gassy from all the pharaoh she was eating. Um, so, so, you know, there's probably going to be an upper limit, but how easy is it to sprinkle, you know, I, I'm in Seattle. I have rosemary and mint and oregano growing like weeds in my yard right now. Like all I have to do is sprinkle a couple of those things on, on whatever I'm eating for dinner tonight. And I get two more points, four more points. So if you can start to find these little ways to, Oh, let's have chili for dinner. There's six points, nine points. If you put some fresh herbs in there, you know, some olive oil, some onions, point, 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 point. And so I don't know that this is going to be the ultimate way that we teach the Parkinson's community how to eat, but I'm trying different strategies. Um, no question about it. Nobody argues with the idea that fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and whole grain and fish and olive oil and even wine are associated with better outcomes over time. There has never been an argument I've received to those data. As soon as I tell people that dairy is associated with worse progression is where the kicking and screaming and I never trusted that stupid study anyway, sort of responses start. And people's questions are, oh, well, what about my camel milk? But I drink whole fat, blessed milk straight from the goats each morning. Everyone wants a loophole for the dairy. We don't know why dairy is linked to Parkinson's disease. This is what people have the hardest time giving up. In my experience, some people go down, don't, meat is hard for some people, um, but dairy is the one that is really, really hard for the most people in my experience. And I just want to address now, we don't know why. Um, in the last several decades, 30 years or so, there have been five huge studies with tens of thousands of people where we have said, asked the question, is there anything in our environment that could be causing Parkinson's? And very consistently, the only thing that comes up in study after study after study is head trauma 
well, uh, pesticides and dairy. Five studies have said environmentally, the more dairy a person eats in midlife, the more likely they are to be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And then our research says once diagnosed, the more dairy a person eats, the faster their disease progresses. We don't know why, but my advice is it's time to be done with mammalian breast milk. We live in a time where you have access to oat milk, hemp milk, rice milk, cashew milk, soy milk, almond milk. I could keep going on. You have so many dairy free. You can, your ice cream can be coconut bliss, you know, or sorbet. There are so many dairy-free alternatives. My advice to anyone with a diagnosis of Parkinson's, a parent with Parkinson's, a concern that you might someday get diagnosed is get rid of the mammalian breast milk and switch to plant-based options. The data are too consistent. And then, you know, as I kind of, this is coming into the closing here, um, my data is what I'm calling the Parkinson's Pro because it's based on patient reported outcomes. Um, and you can see that there are some trends. Uh, these, what I did is I looked at uh, all of the nutrition research that has been shown to be beneficial to Parkinson's disease. Um, there's a little bit less on the ketogenic diet, but there are uh, two very, very small studies that suggest non-motor symptoms might get better when somebody does a ketogenic diet. I am usually not a, a fan. I usually don't recommend the ketogenic diet, but it might be beneficial to some people. Um, but, <coughs> excuse me, these are some common, every one of the studies that has been shown to be beneficial I have to cough, hold on one second. <coughs> I'm throwing my ice cream away. You know what? <coughs> that is fabulous information. Oh my God, this is one of the best talks we've ever had. Absolutely. Oh my God. This is like music to our ears, right guys? I mean, I, I'm gonna go downstairs and throw my ice yeah. cream away. It's music to our ears unless you love ice cream and have I it. Know, I love ice cream, but look at how significant this Absolutely. is. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, everybody, everybody with PD in this world should have this information. Yeah. yeah. Right? Oh, I didn't mean to yeah. stop sharing. Did we lose her? Is it, she's still continuing. No, no, she's still here. All right, all right. Thank you. Okay. So there are some themes here and across the board, outside of my lab, other researchers around the world are showing that this is the list of foods that seems to be protective against either getting Parkinson's disease or having it progress. And there are some themes. So when you're gabbing about what is the Parkinson's diet, I can, we're, we're starting to, it's coming into form, right? You know, the stuff where there's a whole bunch of green lines, eat that stuff. The stuff that is consistently coming up red, get that out, you know? Um, and again, this is a work in progress, right? I, I'm not coming to you with the answer key. I'm telling you with a, a piece, a new, a new perspective on, hey, I got to peek from a whole different direction. Um, 
so in summary, I, again, I just want to say just because people who eat beef have more symptoms over time does not mean that it is the beef that is causing them to have more symptoms over time. It might be, it might not be. It could be that people who eat beef also don't exercise as much, don't exercise as much right? And so we, it, it's hard to tell what is cause and effect. And, and philosophically, I do hope that other researchers come after me and try and tease out why is dairy bad? What is it about chicken that's not good for you? Why does Brussels, do Brussels sprouts confer so much benefit? It is not the best use of my time to figure out the why. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm interested in. I just want to know who are the people doing best and what are they doing so that you guys, well, while they're looking to understand the mechanism of action stuff, I'm trying to give you a deliverable that you can put to, into practice today. Well, they have 200 years to figure this out. If you're going to wait until they figure, they, you know, they, the people who offer the explanations come up with an explanation, you're gonna be waiting a long time. Let them do that on their time. I wanted to give you something that you could get to work on today. Um, and, then, and then when you're saying everyone who's diagnosed, I'll say a step further, every, there are 5 million people who already have Parkinson's in the US who don't know that they have Parkinson's. They're not gonna learn that they have Parkinson's for another five, 10, 15 years. Right. By the time you get a diagnosis, you've already had this disease for 10, 20 years. Is if we were to get our act together on the medical side of things, we are going to have your M, your docs, your primary care docs asking you when you come in for your annual check in, how's your sense of smell? Are you constipated? Do you act out your dreams at night? You know, how's your sleep? Start screening for these non motor symptoms. The number of people who find out when they get diagnosed, the tremor is almost a relief because now they understand why they've had apathy and fatigue and ED for the last 10 years. So, so what we should be doing is doing a better job screening folks. As, as we said at the beginning, um, I have two Italian truffle hunting dogs, a third one in the works that have been trained to smell, to, you know, take your dirty Q-tips. There is no reason we can't take a 40 year old with a bad sense of smell and constipation and have the dogs tell them right now, whether or not they already have the scent of Parkinsonism. Those, if it's like saving for retirement when you're a teenager. I mean, if you can start making some of these dietary changes and lifestyle changes and play your cards a little differently here, we are really in a position, you know, this, this is one of my favorite graphs is, is this black line is real data, right? This is the real expected slope of progression. And this, this line right below it is what your progression would look like if the day you were diagnosed, you cut your rate of progression in half. It's good. I'll take it. Instead of living another 25 years and winding up in poor shape, you're in fair shape. It's better, but it's not good enough. I mean, imagine if your kids at 20 or 30 were to find out that they already have Parkinson's underway and we could identify them and they could make those changes. Instead of di being diagnosed 20 years later when they're 40, what that means is it's gonna be another 45 years before they even get symptomatic enough to be diagnosed. 
Wow. We are buying another couple decades of disease-free living, right? If we can get to this early, we are really starting to open the door to having a conversation about whether or not Parkinson's is preventable. So this is where I think the, the field is headed. It's where I'm headed anyway. Um, for people who want more information, um, this Living Healthy with Parkinson's website, it has not been updated in 2021, but it will be shortly. That's where we keep kind of the, the cheat sheet of our summary slides for everything of the foods and behaviors and things associated with better outcomes over time. This is you know, always your place where you can go and just find out what our study is learning. Um, and we're in the middle of a big remodel there. Um, my Parkinson's school is where I put most of my time into. Um, there are 24 classes pre-recorded that are there. You can learn about anxiety or sleep or supplements or laboratory tests. Um, and then for people who want to join the study, ooh, people who want to join the study, that link to Cam Care and Parkinson's disease is how to, where to go to join the study. And again, the more people who participate, the more we are able to pass on to you. Everyone wants to know red wine or white wine, and we need more of you to join this study before we can answer that question. Um, so, so please consider enrolling in that. Um, it's, it's about an hour, hour and a half survey twice a year. All right, that's all I have. This is Unbelievably fabulous information. I can't even begin to tell you. I know everybody shares it. You're, you are outstanding. I mean, you, I mean, this, this, right, everybody? Oh my God. We've yeah. had a lot of speakers that have covered all kinds of topics. I will say that this is the most unique information we've received, at least in my opinion, and incredibly well presented and um, so grateful for being able to, to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the hard work that you've done. To, to tease this out. I mean, yeah, yeah. all of us have, have said like, what, what do we need to do besides take our medicines? We understand that the medicines just treat the symptoms, but we want, we, we want of course, to slow down the progression. And, and it's, this is non-pharmacological care. We need, we need our medications, not saying we don't need our medications, but the exercise, diet, all that you're talking about helps to treat to slow the disease. And this is what we've been looking for. This is what we've been striving for. And you didn't speak too fast, Lori. <laughs> yeah. great. great. You're amazing. I mean, I, I'm all in with you. I mean, I mean I, I'm a follower. I'm totally, I'm all in. But on that note, Lynn, Lori. I go to Seattle for the clinic. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Lori, if there's a way that we can help you with your research, I know you said you need participants and stuff, but as a group, we're a very active group of uh, people in Shakers Anonymous. And if you want to tell us, you know, and start something that will help you uh, achieve more of your research and such, we'll sign up. I'm sure that there's a bunch of people online right now uh, that would be willing to raise their hands and provide you access to them. We have, we have 350 emails. Um, right. That's just for, um, and then including Parkinson's Body and Mind, which is the exercise and wellness program affiliated with YMCA. So we would love to help you with your research, all of us. I would love it. So here's what I would ask anyone who's listening here today, the sooner you could get enrolled in the CAM care study, that is immediately the most valuable thing and spread it to your friends. Um, in terms of things like a burst, a surge, let's go recruit. Um, we are in the middle of renaming it from instead of the CAM care 
study because some a lot of people assume they don't use enough alternative medicine stuff so they don't I don't want a skewed group joining the study. This isn't just about alternative medicine. I can tell you which pharmaceuticals are associated with faster and slower progression, yeah. right? We're, we're looking for anything that can be changed. Like, can we shift? Can we change it for better outcomes? And so we're changing the name of the CAMCARE study to MVP study, modifiable variables in Parkinson's disease. And I think it's a better name. And I think it's just a more appealing name to more people. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll be rebranding things. And so um, if we could stall on your enthusiasm a little bit to, to announce, go help recruit to the world, which I would really, really appreciate. Um, it'd be fun to do it under the new heading so that everyone's on the same page about, about what study we're talking about here. Can you repeat what it stood for again, modifiable? Uh, modifiable variables in Parkinsonism. Got it. Thank you. Would you I will be control? Yeah, I, I'll be adding a uh, a study page to the website pretty soon. So. Um, oh, that's great. We can add a section just for you. Great. Great. Do you want non-Parkinson's? I mean, a lot of us are are caregivers, and and we uh, participate in a lot of studies as, as uh, controls, you don't need controls. You just want people who have Parkinson's, got and, and, and people who, we, the other thing that we're changing is we're gonna start to um, enroll the pre-motor Parkinson's, people who have reason to believe that they might have Parkinson's but haven't been, don't meet diagnostic criteria yet. Okay. So we will also be adding those folks into this so that they are represented. Okay, wow. I mean, this is fabulous. This is really, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I'm going to sign up tonight and I know many of us are going to do that too. I mean, this is great. Great. Lori, Lynn and Jeff, who were speaking earlier are the people who founded this group. They're amazing. And we're so lucky to have them. And we're so lucky they chose the name Shakers Anonymous that made you agree to speak to us tonight. <laughs> Well, really, I mean, this is actually a really big theme of what I talk about because I, I, in my practice, you know, I see, I see a lot of people who, when they're early, early in the diagnosis, like to remain in the closet, right? Mm -hmm. They run companies, they've got big firms, they, they're, they're, and I, we spend a lot of time talking about the implications of, of, you know, your right to privacy and, you know, this like everyone you meet is like, so how are things, right? You know, and you don't want to be identified as the disease, but you still want the community support and you need your tribe to know what you're going through. And, you know, you're sick as your secrets, but you have a right to privacy and um, you are a lot more than this disease. And it's, you know, so anyway, I, I really like that conversation. I think, um, I, I think anyway, the, the anonymous part is something that I actually end up tackling and addressing with a lot of people who are are in the closet, as I say. Yeah, there's a stigma sometimes associated with Parkinson's that that you know it's 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 we as a group fight against that. You know, so we're trying to you know it's a, it's a game changer for many of us to have our tribe. This is our tribe, and it really has made a big big impact. And it's peer led and it's peer run. So it, it really makes a big difference. I mean, I, you know, I'm also extraordinarily fascinated by your Parkinson's school. I think that's wonderful because a lot of times when people get diagnosed, they don't know where to turn to get information. And so how fabulous to empower an individual to 
to live as healthy as possible with Parkinson's? Yeah, so let me, for those who, let me just show people, there are two things that I do. So um, so the um, once a week in August, I run this very fancy VIP type, all bells and whistles, one week intensive. Like if you were to be diagnosed as an addict, you go check yourself into rehab. We run a week long Parkinson's camp. We, it's medical, we do lab work, there are movement disorder docs, physical therapists, myself, we've got a whole team and we do classroom, we exercise together, we eat together, we do tons, every lab I would do on myself. Um, and it's this kind of all inclusive program that that is a dream right it's it's the, if everyone could do it I, I my dream is to get every new diagnosed person to be able to go to a camp like this for a week learn what they need to learn and go home but obviously insurance isn't paying for it yet and it's financially out of reach for most people and so um we have the the week each summer for for summer school but then there this online version is kind of more of a um accessible to everybody sort of, of thing where, you know, it looks like this. And, and the thing I wanted to show you is, you know, there's an hour on what, to, how to eat and what to eat and what labs to order, all this stuff. But what I wanted to show you is there are dates on here, like, mm. um, and so on the 14th and the 28th of every month, we have a live meeting. So for anybody who watched the class on conditionally essential nutrients, on June 28th, we meet and for an hour and a half, we actually very academically talk about the class. What did I learn? What do I wish I had said differently? Um, people ask questions uh, and it's it's really like, a, this is kind of the 101 level. Hey, here's who I am. Here's what the research says. For those of you who really wanna roll up your sleeves and kind of take a deeper dive, this is the deeper dive. I mean, I am not a disciplined person. If you tell me I can't have something, I'm gonna want it that much more, right? Like it, it's just, I don't, I, I'm in naturally rebellious, right? And it's hard for me, the, the because I said so doesn't work for me. But the, the more I understand the why behind it, the easier and easier and easier it becomes to make the changes I wanna make. And so that, this is really for the people who are just a little more heady and they just having some explanations, understanding the science, thinking it through a little bit, I really think makes it easier to make your changes. So would it be possible for you to have as one of your reference points that you're, you're collecting data on those who um, talk about their Parkinson's and those who are, so to speak, in the closet, would That's that be worth measuring to find out how those people are progressing, huh. you know, yep. see, you know, great suggestion, great suggestion. It'll be on the next survey. <laughs> also, do you want people whose disease has progressed quite a lot? Yep. In your, yep. The more, the more people who join, the more the data accurately reflects the real living group of people I'm trying to help. Diversity is the more, the better. So this is part of the care team. So in the future care of Parkinson's should include not only see a movement disorder doctor, but also a nutritionist, you know, right? And to talk about diet and talk about these things that are so important. 
um, you know, to get everybody in the right place. It's just like prescribed exercise individually. So when the doctor says that, you know, it's best, it's, you know, you need to go out and exercise. Like, well, some people, a lot of us need guidance and how much exercise, what type of exercise, what's safe, what's, what's, you know, what, what is ideal. So all of this is, is really creating, um, you know, a healthier person with Parkinson's. And I'm going to guess that like a regular nutritionist will not have the savvy yeah. uh, that, of course, Dr. Mishley has. Yeah. Um, no, but I will tell you, um, I, I have that um, what to eat and how to eat video series. I've met a lot who are more than thrilled. I, I get emails from a lot of dietitians who say they came across my what to eat and how to eat videos and they are putting it to practice in their Alzheimer's clinics and their Parkinson's clinics. And so if, if, so the issue with a dietitian is insurance only pays for it if you have diabetes in, in most networks. There isn't yet a training program where we, we so, so the way research works is now that I found these associations, the next step is to flip it forward and find out if people who are eating cheeseburgers and milkshakes start eating broccoli and salmon, do they change course? And once we show that that is true, which I'm working on, once we show that that is true, then we should be able to go to insurance companies and Medicare and say, now that there is evidence that changing your diet changes your outcomes, then is when that's when they'll start paying for these types of interventions. And I'm, that's what I'm working on is, is trying to make this more accessible to all of you. I'd like to ask, I'd like to ask a question about exercise. Obviously we know that exercise makes a huge difference. And my wife exercises religiously and uh, we think that it's made a huge difference. One thing that you said, I thought that's a little counterintuitive. Um, most people who exercise for athletic reasons, not PD, are told do not exercise seven days a week, that you need a day off to let your bones rest, your muscles rest and whatever. But yet your research is a little counterintuitive that says, go ahead, go full board, do the seven days. What do you think about taking a day off? It's very interesting. There are two conflicting uh, pieces of information. So I am naturally a little bit lazy when it comes to physical activity. And uh, first thing I noticed was the difference between six and seven days a week wasn't all that big a difference. And I could eat a little bit of extra olive oil later and make up for it. Um, make a new friend. Um, I, I think there is psychological value to not, to taking a break, to just saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to skip exercise and go meet some friends for lunch, you know, because my, it's all part of what needs to get done. I am I, at camp. One of my mantras, mantras at the summer school is B plus is good enough, right? Like I, I really, I am a B plus type of person. I, I have, you know, my rules are I never bring dairy into the house. I don't cook meat at home. I just don't, we don't do it at home. But if I'm a guest at somebody's house, I will happily eat whatever they serve me and say, thank you. You know, when I'm traveling, if you see me at the World Parkinson Congress in Barcelona in 2022, I am probably going to have a cheese plate with my glass of wine on some deck someplace when you <laughs> run into me there. When I, I travel... It. I eat no rules on vacation. And when I'm a guest at somebody's house, I eat what they serve and say thank you. But that's why I behave at home is to afford myself a little flexibility when I'm out. 
right? I mean, I don't want to be the person who sends back a Greek salad because I forgot to say no feta, right? If I know that I haven't had cheese in the last two weeks, who cares if there's a little bit of feta on my salad? I'm, I, I haven't had dairy otherwise in weeks prior, you know? And so that's, that's how I think about it, but I don't know that that's right. But we all have to kind of pick and choose. I had a patient tell me I would rather spend the rest of my life in this wheelchair than give up ice cream. Ooh, ooh, I disagree with that one. I mean, how fabulous would it be to, to tap you into the, this world of, of people with PD and like Shakers Anonymous, like across the country with the YMCA to bring this, bring this to the people with PD? You know, like we all never, I mean, I never, I never had the, the honor to hear you before. And, you know, I've had Parkinson's for 10 years. I wish I, I had this lecture 10 years ago. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, you know, it makes so much sense and it's just, it's just great information that everybody should have. Lynn, could I ask another question? And that is, is, is it, are, are you Lori and people like you who are re, uh, committing yourself to serious research? Are you related at all to other neurological conditions? Many of us came to Parkinson's through another Neuro, neurological disease, in my case, uh, MS. And I wonder if it's, it looks to me as though everything that you're trying to find out, Lori, would probably apply usefully to, to most other neurological diseases, but is there any reason to cross them up and compare them and use them that way? Yes. And no, um, while there are some key differences between a lot of those, I was at a conference presenting similar data to this about a, two years ago. And also speaking with somebody speaking about Dale Bredesen's Alzheimer's protocol and Dean Ornish was there talking about the way to reverse evidence-based evidence research on reversing cardiovascular disease. And of course I spoke after those two and by the time I went up, I, it was my turn to speak. I didn't even want to go, you know, say what I had to say because it had all been said. I mean, the solution for reversing Alzheimer's was the same as the solution for reversing cardiovascular disease. It was no different than what I was about to present. Oh, interesting. I mean, we, and we are actually running the same study called CAMCARE and MS because my heart's not in it. It hasn't, you know, it, it also has 1500 people, but I haven't been recruiting for it or analyzing the data the same way, but it's sitting there waiting for a grad student to come help me. Well, I hope so. Because it'd be a shame to pass up useful information. That no, would it's there. It's there. I'm getting to it as fast as I can. I just have to stop giving four lectures per week. Lori, a question for you. In filling out the survey regarding symptoms, do you want answers for when your system, when your meds are off versus on or both? Or good question. Um, all things considered, on average, over the last week. Okay. If it's okay. been a good week where you where you haven't had a lot of offs, try try your best to zoom out and ask, on average, how bad has the week been or how good has the week been? Okay. Okay. Well, Gloria, I was just curious. What, what, why do you think cinnamon's been the gold standard for 60 years? Maybe, maybe they're asking the wrong question or looking in the wrong place. Well, I think it is the gold standard for treating a lot of motor symptoms. Um, 
if you turn that's off a long time though if you if you turn off the recording i'll turn it off okay got All it right.